Welcome to Season 2 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Addison, Vice President at Trapello, and today we have John Quackenbush, PhD, Chair of the Department of Biostatistics at Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. John, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Jerome. It's a privilege to be here with you. So thank you very much for inviting me. For sure. You know, I mentioned this because I heard you speak not too long ago, and I've heard you speak over the years, and you have, kind of have that distinction in my mind, and I'm, I'm sure others, of being that person who can speak about the, the human genome in a way that kind of helps us visualize what in the heck, you know, we're looking at and talking about um, and represent the genome in a way that we can begin to learn and understand the scope of what actually we're dealing with. Because, you know, what does the genome look like? And I, I think I figured out why. So <laughs> you were one of the first folks that were hired to work on the Human Genome Project, which predates the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. So, you know, there's people who say that where we are now are the early days of kind of genomic and genetic, um, you know, evaluation and, and using that information. So when you started, that had to literally be like the Flintstones. So what was yeah, we, that like? We had little stone cars with, we, you know, big stone wheels and dinosaurs <laughs> coming to help us cut the genome up into smaller pieces <laughs> so we could sequence it. It was exciting. Um, so what was it like? Well, you know, it, it was a very interesting time. And, and thank you for the, the, the kind words. I always sort of attribute it to the fact that um, I had to learn biology and genomics kind of from the ground up. My PhD was actually in theoretical physics. And mm. um, as you mentioned, I, I got a, a position working on the Human Genome Project very early on, back in, in 1992. And um, it was a really exciting time. Um, in the 1940s, um, you know, people had started to decode the structure of DNA. And I think Watson and Crick's famous paper was published in 1953. We knew that DNA was the genetic material. We knew it was made up of these individual subunits we call bases, A, C, G, and T, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. We knew it formed this double helix structure where A on one strand pairs with T on the other, C on one strand with G on the other. Um, but we didn't have a good way of understanding what the genes were, uh, where they were encoded within this genome. Um, we didn't really have any technology to read off that string of A's, C's, G's, and T's that we now think of as a genetic code. And it was really in the 1970s, I think 1977, when Fred Sanger invented uh, what we now refer to as Sanger sequencing. And it was mm -hmm. the first technology we could think about using to read off the DNA sequence. Um, but to scale that from you know, a few bases at a time, to reading off the 3 billion bases of the human genome um, was a real challenge. And, you know, just to give the listeners a, a perspective, 3 billion is a number that um, is sort of hard to conceive of. Right. Um, right. It, it's 
a little bit bigger than our salaries, I would assume. <laughs> um, it's a tiny fraction of the national debt, but it's uh, three billion is the number of seconds in ninety-five years. Wow. Right. So, if we could read a base a second and lived a very long life, we would have gotten to the end of one copy of our genome. And we actually carry two, one from our mothers, one from our fathers. So, um, you know, it was a time when uh, in the early 1990s, scientists had sort of realized that we could take this technology that Sanger developed and scale it up and scale it in such a way that we could automate a lot of the processes and then read off the sequence. And then once we had that sequence, we had to figure out what to do with it, which is kind of where I came into this. Um, you know, somebody with a quantitative background um, in physics, um, you know, the, one of the questions was, well, how do we take all of this data and make sense of it? Mm -hmm. And so that was really my, my entree into the Human Genome Project back in the early 1990s. And to, to fast forward, I guess with everything that you've done and, and helped create, being the chair of the biostatistics program, you also teach computational biology and bioinformatics. So I guess for our listeners also, can you explain to what those <laughs> terms mean and how these disciplines are being used to enable precision medicine? Uh, sure. So um, as I was getting ready for this podcast, I was actually making up a homework assignment for my students. So, um, you know, if the listeners want to uh, drop me a note, I'll send them the assignment. We'll see what they can do. <laughs> um, but um, I've actually been here at Harvard since March of 2005. And um, I've been involved in, in the Department of Biostatistics, which um, at the time I came didn't quite match up with um, what people were doing in computational biology and bioinformatics. But um, our department now really has kind of a, a broad scope and that we realize that biostatistics is part of that cornerstone of what we think of as quantitative health science. And there are other important pieces now, um, things like machine learning and data science and, and computational biology and bioinformatics. So. I got my start in the early 1990s, as uh, we talked about earlier, working on the Human Genome Project. And one of those questions that we were all asking was, you know, what do we do with these three billion bases once we have them? And it really was a whole series of questions, all of which inevitably boiled down to well, we have to develop computer programs and software that's going to allow us to make sense of this massive data. And that that quest to build these programs and come up with new methods and, and handle these massive data sets um, is what we started to refer to as either bioinformatics or computational biology. Um, in the early days, you know, some of the questions were, well, can we just take these pieces of DNA we can read off and, you know, at the time, there were a few hundred base pairs in length. So how do we take all these little pieces and put them all together to reassemble um, a representation of our genomes? And then there were other questions we started asking, like, well, what are the genes and where are they uh, within that genome? So a lot of the early questions were really around the mechanics of taking what was coming out of a DNA sequence or a string of ACs, Gs, and Ts putting them together and asking what was there. 
But then once we started to find genes, you know, we started asking questions like, what do they do? How are they put together? Mm -hmm. um, can we find similar genes in a mouse or a plant like Arabidopsis thaliana or a yeast like Saccharomyces cerevisiae, where we could do experiments um, to understand what these genes were actually doing. So um, as the Genome Project sort of grew and evolved, um, this whole discipline of computational biology started to evolve really around um, how do we work at the interface between computation and biology to ask and answer meaningful questions. It's amazing. I think we're still asking that question, you know, what do we do with this information? But, you know, from the perspective of your team, the people that you've worked with internationally on this, this project, um, we have programs, we have software, we have platforms to be able to measure this. In, in the world of knowledge, how much do you think we actually have uh, a good understanding of in order to do something with, if you could put it in a percentage? You know, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to say where we are. Uh, I can tell you we're a lot farther along than we were in, you know, in, in 1992 when I started working on the G, uh, Genome Project. Uh, we're much farther along than we were when we had the first reference genome completed in 2000 or published in 2001. What's really exciting for somebody like me today is that um, technologies to generate DNA sequence data have um, just grown tremendously. The, the cost has fallen. The time it takes to sequence a genome has fallen dramatically. And so now we have access to literally thousands of genomes that we can start to interpret. Right? And you know, it, there's a, a cost curve that I often show when I talk about sequencing the genome. Um, and you know, when the first genome was sequenced in, in 2000, 2001, the estimate was that sequencing the next genome was going to cost about $100 million. Um, and that's you know, a price most of us can't even imagine. By 2009, because of these new technologies, it, right. it, it had dropped to about $100,000. And, you know, even then, we knew enough about some diseases like cancer and the genetic variants that are associated with the disease that I would say, very honestly, if my wife or son had a rare tumor, I would mortgage our house and sequence their genomes. Um, today, the cost of sequencing a genome is, a, you know, on the order of $1,000. And people get, quote you different numbers depending on what you're going to do and how much sequence you're going to generate. But $1,000 is a sort of good working number. And when I think about that, we're moving from this domain where you say, well, I have to mortgage my house to sequence my wife or son's cancer genome now to being able to say, well, I could pay for that with a credit card. And, you know, that really sort of right. transforms right. the way we think about generating data, but also using it. And for somebody like me who likes to deal with ever larger quantities of data, it gives us the opportunity to ask and hopefully answer much more meaningful, complex questions. Yeah. You know, precision medicine as it relates to, to genomic testing for oncology has been in the mindset of, you know, one gene, one drug, kind of a one-to-one -one relationship. But your research recognizes that it's not individual genes that influence disease development or response to drugs, but it's more of a complex network of interacting genes that determine how, I guess, cells behave. Uh, and you call those gene networks. So 
how can we begin to understand what a gene network is? Because a lot of professionals are still trying to wrap their mind around just one target. And, and how does this approach help patients clinically? So, you know, there are a couple really good questions there. So, you know, the first question is, you know, why do we worry about networks? And uh, the analogy I always like to give is that, you know, if we think about um, the cells in our body, I always like to think, think them as little machines made of proteins. And one of the acting mm-hmm. definitions we have for a gene, and there are a variety of different definitions people use, but a, a pretty common definition and sort of at the core of most of what we talk about is that a gene is a stretch of DNA that includes the blueprints for making a protein, okay? So the genome gave us a, a, a list of genes that gave us a list of proteins that make up the cell, all right? So um, we can think about this in a variety of different ways. The, the first way I would say uh, encourage us to think, uh, encourage us to think beyond indiv- individual genes is the idea that if I were to look at a machine like your car, Right. If you were to tell me about a single piece, right, that single piece, if it breaks, might prevent your car from working. So if the fuel pump dies, that car might stop. And if you could figure out that it was the fuel mm-hmm. pump that broke, then you would know that if you replace the fuel pump, you can fix the car, right? That single element, that single protein in the cell that corresponds to the fuel pump could be something you focus in and, and really try to understand. On the other hand, what might happen in your car is the fuel pump might still be working, but not completely. And the fuel filter might be a little clogged and some of the fuel lines might be a little cracked and leaky. And so if you start to think about reasons your car might not run, it could be one element or it could be a system, a group of elements that interact together to keep your car functioning. And if they break down, um, even a little bit might prevent your car from starting. And it's a much harder problem to solve if it's not one thing you can replace or one thing you can target if you've got a larger set of elements interacting together. And that's kind of the way we we have started to think about human cells, that any individual protein or any individual gene that corresponds to that protein, any individual protein by itself um, doesn't really give us the whole picture, that it's part of a larger set of interactions that govern the way in which the cells work. Okay, So when we start to think about biological, biological complexity, we recognize that individual genes by themselves only give us part of that more complete picture. Um, the, The second thing we start to recognize is that while we talk about a human cell in the human genome, your brain cells and your liver cells and your kidney cells all have um, the same genome, the same DNA. They encode the same set of genes. And so, what we now understand is that in a brain cell and a liver cell, a lot of the same genes are turned on because the cell has to run, it has to consume oxygen, it has to produce carbon dioxide, it consumes sugar um, to drive you know, its energy metabolism. We have core functions that a cell just has to do. But then there are other Uh, properties or other functions that are carried out by the cell that are unique, right? Your brain cells are making neurotransmitters. 
your liver cells are making digestive enzymes. And so as we start to think about this bigger picture, what we realize is that that genome, which encodes all these proteins that make up all the parts, is actually activating different elements in different cell types. And again, a lot of the way we think about mm. that is that those genes which are being activated are regulated or controlled in different ways. So uh, we can talk about networks of proteins to make your cells function. We can also talk about regulatory networks of genes interacting together um, to activate different processes in different cells. And just like there are different processes or networks of interacting elements that turn on certain genes in your brain and not in the liver or vice versa. They're a set of interactions between these genes that turn on certain processes in a healthy cell and turn them off in a tumor cell or turn them on in a tumor cell, which is much more likely, and keep them off yeah. in a healthy cell. So the reason we start to think about networks is we realize that just like, you know, all the parts of your car don't tell you how the car runs. Uh, a parts list for a cell doesn't tell you how the cell runs, that we have to think about how these parts go together. And we have to start thinking about them in context to understand what makes one type of cell different from another. So, so for our listeners, I'll remind you that I did say that you were one of the most gifted speakers that that helps us understand how you know what we're dealing with because that car analogy was teaching gold, man. That everyone's had a problem with a car, and it's not just the fuel pump. It, they get you on a diagnostic tool and work the network, and you, you go in for a fuel pump and walk out with a brand new engine or something. You know, that's just gold. So it, it would seem to me that gene networks would be even more personalized and precise because, you know, what's a normal gene function for one person and the expression uh, for one patient is completely different from another. And then there's kind of the environmental factors that might influence that. Like, so, so what kind of opportunities come out of knowing this uh, about the way our genome Well, works. you know, it's given us a lot of insight into um, different aspects of uh, you know, what makes cancer cancer? And it has given us insight into ways that we can think about uh, treating cancer. And the first step to all of this is really understanding. So um, my colleagues and I have developed a whole series of methods around the idea that we can look at differences in gene regulation. So what's this process? What are the things in the cell that are turning on certain functions in, in one cell type and not in another. So in a healthy cell or a tumor cell. And as we started to look at this, what we've come to recognize is that um, when we look at different groups, we can start to see differences in that regulatory process. So one of the nicest examples of this um, is a study that um, uh, Camilla Lopez Ramos and Don DeMeo and Kimberly Glass and uh, I think Marike Kujer and I published um, in October of 2018. Uh, and it was a study of um, sexual dimorphism and colon cancer. So, sexual dimorphism is um, this observation that in many diseases, we actually see differences in the clinical manifestation of that disease between men and women. 
right? So um, if we look at colon cancer, there are differences in disease uh, risk, there are differences in disease severity once disease starts to develop, and there are differences in response to chemotherapy that we uh, see between men and women. And one of the, the questions that's been a long-standing open question is what drives these differences between males and females? And um, we started to ask that question by looking at the individual genes and, and their mutations and, and didn't see anything that was informative. We then looked at what genes were simply turned on and off and men and women. And, you know, when we ask that question about what's being turned on and off, um, the data we get is often just a snapshot, right? And I often liken this to mm -hmm. trying to learn the rules of football by looking at the pictures of a football game that might appear in a newspaper, right? You have a dozen shots. Right. How do you learn the rules, right? What makes males different from females? And when we started to look at this, we didn't see any clear pattern emerging. But we stood back and used some of the methods we have for for estimating networks, for learning networks in male tumors and female tumors. And when we asked how do the networks between men and women differ, what we saw was that there were differences in the pathways that turn on or turn off drug metabolism in men and women. So that gives us a really interesting insight because the, the regulation of these pathways is controlled differently in males and females. Our snapshots were really tumors before treatment had started, but our models told us that we should expect differences in how male and female disease respond. And so from that first step, we haven't yet moved to treating men and women differently, but we've developed some hypotheses for how we might want to do that. And those are things that we can test in the laboratory. We can test in cell lines and animal models. And we can really start to understand whether or not um, we should use some of these. And as a first step to better precision medicine, just ask the question, you know, should we be treating males and females with colon cancer differently? And this, you know, um, a phenomenon of sexual dimorphism occurs not just in colon cancer. We see it in other cancers, head and neck cancer, lung cancer. We see it in diseases like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and emphysema. We see it in Alzheimer's. And so as we start to tease apart these regulatory networks, we can start to ask questions that have eluded us before, like do men and women differ? And there are a whole host of other things we can mm -hmm. do too, using these kinds of methods. You've been listening to part one of our conversation with Professor John Quackenbush, Chair of the Department of Biostatistics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Be sure to look out for part two, where we'll continue our discussion on precision medicine beyond simple mutations. We hope you'll tune in. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. 
If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Thank you.